Section 6 of The Catholic's Ready Answer This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org The Catholic's Ready Answer by Rev. M. P. Hill Section 6 Bible Myths Objection The Bible contains many stories that remind us forcibly of the myths of early pagan history. How can we be expected to believe the story of the serpent tempting Eve, that of the flood with its fabulous quantity of water, that of Noe collecting the countless species of animals, and then is not God frequently represented in a strangely human way, when, for instance, he is described as taking slime and forming it into a human body, or as shaping Adam's rib into a woman, or when he is said to be moved to wrath, or to repent of his creation of man? The answer. In reading many of the interesting and remarkable things narrated in the book of Genesis, we must not be surprised if the events connected with the foundation of a universe and of a human society are not of the commonplace type that make up our daily history. Supposing a creation and a revelation, what wonder if the hand of God should in some sense be visible in his creation. What wonder if a mingling of the human and the divine should be a matter of frequent occurrence. An impartial and broad-minded examination of the Bible stories in question will show that, so far from being a counterpart of pagan mythology, they stand out in bold relief from the whole mass of ancient legendary lore and exhibit a dignity and sobriety of content which is conspicuously wanting in the fabulous history of pagan origins. To pass in review all the alleged mythical stories of the Bible would be to write a commentary far outrunning the limits of these brief articles. We shall have to content ourselves with a specimen or two. From these the reader will get an idea of the light in which we read the Bible. The Serpent Tempting Eve An evident fable, says the sceptic, and he dismisses the subject with a shrug of his shoulder. Nevertheless, it is not so evidently a fable. Animals do not speak, but beings of the purely spiritual order, such as the angels, may use the animal nature or material substance of any kind for their purposes. But perhaps our objector is a materialist and does not believe in spiritual natures. The angels are to him only another mythical feature of the Bible narrative. To prove the existence of spiritual beings does not fall within the scope of the present article, but whilst referring our sceptical friend to other parts of this work, we cannot refrain from asking him why he denies the existence of spiritual beings. Is it not to be feared that his opposition to the spiritual is resolvable into a mere feeling or impression based upon a crude, unreasoned notion that anything imperceptible to the senses anything that has not three dimensions, has no reality whatever, is simply nothing. But we must assume here the existence of spirits and show how, on this assumption, the narrative we are considering acquires a dignity and a degree of credibility which remove it far from the absurd or the fabulous. The evil one made use of the serpent as an instrument of temptation. But why make use of an animal of any kind because an animal, and especially the serpent, was the best suited to his purpose. Consider the circumstances. 
The devil, who is a spiritual being, plans the ruin of man, who is partly of a spiritual, partly of a corporeal nature. The devil seldom tempts by direct suggestion, but usually through our natural concupiscence. But in the state of primitive innocence, concupiscence, by God's special favour, was absent. There was nothing in man's nature in sympathy with moral evil. Hence, the only available instrument within the devil's reach was the purely animal nature with which man has so much in common. He chose the serpent, at that time gracious of form and known to be more subtle, wise, than any of the beasts of the earth. We may add that he selected as the direct object of his temptation the woman rather than the man, as the weaker of the two. Eve was doubtless surprised to find the serpent, wise though he was, using human speech, but she knew there were superior beings in the universe who might speak through the serpent, and if she was aware that she stood in the presence of such a being, the fact easily explains the deference she showed the serpent's judgment during the temptation. A sensible appetite was then under the control of reason and gave no handle to temptation. The devil assailed her through reason itself. He plied her with the why and the wherefore of God's commands. Why hath God commanded you that you should not eat of every tree of paradise? God doth know that in what day soever you shall eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Pride was awakened as it had been among the angels. Eve, the joint ruler with Adam of God's creation, was already high in the scale of being, but now she would rise higher. She would be a goddess. She would know how to distinguish good from evil, and thus be the arbitress of her own destiny. It was only now that sensible appetite was awakened, and the woman saw that the tree was good to eat, and fair to the eyes, and delightful to behold. She plucked the fruit, ate of it, and afterward used the devil's arguments to induce her partner to do the same, adding, no doubt, an appeal to his affection. Such is the story of man's fall from grace, a story whose details are so true to nature, so intrinsically probable, and withal so replete with dignity. And yet it is a story that has been brushed aside as a piece of absurd fiction. The Flood No less vigorously has the biblical account of the flood been assailed, and yet, as regards the fact, as distinguished from the circumstances, the Bible account has been confirmed by the traditions of so many ancient peoples that even the most sceptical must admit its truth. This is one of the many instances in which an independent study of antiquity has corroborated the sacred text. The historicity of the biblical flood account is confirmed by the tradition existing in all places as to the occurrence of a similar catastrophe. F. von Schwartz enumerates 63 such flood stories which are, in his opinion, independent of the biblical account. R. André discusses 88 different flood stories and considers 62 of them as independent of the Chaldee and Hebrew tradition. Moreover, these stories extend through all the races of the earth, excepting the African. These are accepted, not because it is certain that they do not possess any flood traditions, 
but because their traditions have not as yet been sufficiently investigated. Lenormand pronounces the flood story as the most universal tradition in the history of primitive man, and Franz de Litch was of opinion that we might as well consider the history of Alexander the Great a myth as to call the flood tradition a fable. It would indeed be a greater miracle than that of the deluge itself if the various and different conditions surrounding the several nations of the earth had produced among them a tradition substantially identical. Opposite courses would have produced the same effect. A.J. Mass, S.J. In the Catholic Encyclopedia, Volume 4, page 407. So much for the fact. An extraordinary event which impressed itself deeply upon the memory of mankind really took place, and the history of it the Bible professes to give in its details. It is these details that are principally attacked by the higher critics. It goes without saying that it is the supernatural element of the history that bears the brunt of the attack. The flood story savours too much of the miraculous to be acceptable to the atheistic critic. The gathering together of the countless species of animals and the housing of them in the ark, the feeding and tending of so vast a herd by eight persons, the submerging of immense continents to the height of the loftiest mountains, and the consequent emptying of half the seas, the preservation of fresh water and salt water fish in a mixture of brine and rainwater, which must have been fatal to both kinds. These and other circumstances are rejected by the higher critics as fabulous, because apparently miraculous. Whether there is any need of invoking the miraculous, strictly so called, to explain the facts as narrated may be a question. God could have given no special assistance, short of the miraculous, to enable him to perform the task assigned him, and by a purely natural catastrophe, though on an extraordinary scale, could have accomplished without miracle the destruction of the human race. But still, if it be shown that any one of the disputed circumstances calls for a miracle, we of course shall not be staggered by the prospect of admitting one. We believe in the possibility of miracles, and would naturally look for them in a universal deluge. In a destruction of an entire race, we should expect an assertion of God's power and majesty of the most impressive kind. And yet we must add that even the most devout believer in miracles will place a limit to his acceptance of miracle stories in the concrete. Miracles are not to be multiplied without necessity, i.e. necessity of interpretation, is a sound adaptation of a medieval formula. Working under the guidance of this principle, many of the most orthodox Christian scholars have endeavoured with some success to reduce the limits of the miraculous in the case of the flood. One question on which many others are thought to hinge is whether the deluge covered the entire globe or only a part of it. In the first place, it is well to remember that among the ancients the common conception of the earth was not that of a globe, but rather of a more or less flat surface, with a mysterious substructure of one kind or other, and with watery bounds whose extent was no less mysterious. Its vastness was not even dreamed of. No expression in their literatures ever conveyed the idea of a globe 25,000 miles in circumference, and covered by oceans and continents of enormous extent. But great or small, the earth was seldom spoken of as a whole 
except by philosophers and astronomers. Words in ancient writings, which we frequently render by the earth or the world, meant at the most the inhabited part of the earth, which in Noah's time could have been a small fraction of the whole. Frequently they meant only that part which was most familiar to the writer and his countrymen. It is conceivable, therefore, and even probable, that when any such expression as the earth or even the whole earth is found in the history of the flood, its meaning is to be similarly restricted. It has been noted, moreover, that the Hebrew expression which has been translated, the earth, may easily be rendered the land, the region. If this rendering be adopted, the interpretation of the deluge history will be comparatively easy. Views in favour of a restriction of the geographical area of the deluge have been held by many orthodox writers, and amongst them a large number of Catholics. We, for our part, should welcome any successful attempt at demonstrating that the deluge was geographically not universal. Any such demonstration would obviate the necessity of our believing that God flooded the entire globe in order to destroy a race inhabiting only a small part of it, and expressions denoting universality might be regarded as only relatively universal, that is to say, as relating to a particular region, and thus the defender of Revelation would have a freer hand in dealing with its adversaries. Another question has been mooted, which can hardly be a question for Christians who hearken to the voice of authority and tradition, namely, whether the deluge was universal as regarded the human race, were all men destroyed, or were only those destroyed who inhabited a certain limited area to which alone the Bible history refers? The biblical account, considered in itself and apart from authority and tradition, may possibly admit of an interpretation limiting the destruction of men to a part only of the entire race, but indirectly, that is to say, through the interpretation given it by the fathers of the church, it forbids any such view. No Christian, therefore, who respects the authority of those great teachers of the early church can safely permit himself to hold that any part of the human race was saved from the deluge except Noah and his family who had taken refuge in the ark. It has been objected that the history of the race furnishes evidences that not all men are descended from Noah's family and that consequently some must be descended from a part of the race unaffected by the flood. The supposed evidence lies in such facts as the following. Nations which certainly have sprung from No found in the places in which they first settled inhabitants who had occupied those places for a considerable time. Egyptian monuments of very remote antiquity exhibit the Negro just as we find him today. Even at that early period, he was completely differentiated from the Caucasian. Languages, too, have developed in a way that must have required a greater time than has elapsed since the flood. The gist of all such arguments is that more time is needed to explain the development of races and languages than is allowed by any version of the Bible. This objection has been urged with some persistency, and yet it is based on a false assumption. We do not pretend to have established a fixed and certain system of biblical chronology, so that if it can be demonstrated from undeniable facts that the development of races and languages required a longer time than is usually assigned, there is nothing in Christian hermeneutics forbidding the concession of a longer interval 
between the flood and the present day. Such, if we mistake not, is the general attitude of Catholic scholars toward history and science in their bearings on biblical questions. Obscurity and mystery hover over many parts of the sacred writings, but where a clear and decided meaning is not otherwise discernible, the well-balanced Catholic student avails himself of the services of history or of science whenever either can offer an interpretation at once well-based and well-defended. Our position, then, is briefly this. We are ready, if need be, to accept even as miracles the wonderful events by which God visited his wrath upon a sinful race. It is rational and, in some sense, natural to suppose that at the close of one great act of the drama of human existence, and one that was marked by an all but universal catastrophe, the power of the Almighty should have been more than ordinarily manifest. But at the same time, we are aware that Christian, and even Catholic, scholarship points to an interpretation of the text which reduces the miraculous element to comparatively small dimensions. Only that part of the earth may have been submerged upon which human beings were living, God's primary purpose being to destroy the human race. On this hypothesis, such expressions as all flesh, all things wherein there is the breath of life, need not be taken in a strictly universal sense. They are neither more nor less universal than the expressions which have been rendered by the earth, which may have meant in reality only that region of the earth inhabited by men. Whilst holding, then, that all human beings were destroyed by the deluge, we need not hold that the entire globe was submerged, and whilst holding that all living things within reach of the flood were destroyed, we can still believe that many species of animals, not including men, however, were not touched by the flood. If this be the case, Noah's task of collecting specimens of each species may have been a comparatively easy one. As to the anthropomorphism of the Bible, or its representation of God, as acting in a human way, we know, on the one hand, from the Bible itself, that God is purely spiritual, and that he is infinite and unchangeable, and if, on the other hand, he is represented as acting in ways inconsistent with these attributes, it is only because he wishes to accommodate himself to our human limitations. He knoweth our frame, and adapts his way to ours, he is described as being moved to anger, or as being pleased with the sweet odour of a sacrifice, or as repenting of having created man. The deep impression produced upon men's minds by such modes of representing the deity enables us to understand something of God's motive in permitting himself to be so described. As regards apparitions of God, vouchsafed to his servants, although it was forbidden in the Old Testament, to represent him by any graven image, nevertheless he himself deigned to give man a sense of being brought nearer to his God by sensible forms which impressed upon men's minds the awful feeling that they were face to face with their Maker. When God is represented as fashioning earth into a human body, it need not be supposed that an actual moulding of the clay by an apparently human hand might have been witnessed. At any rate, it is plain from the scriptures that when God produces anything, he does so by a simple act of his will, and that his willing of anything is from all eternity. 
neither change nor motion is in him, but only in things without. End of section 6. Recording by Florence.